0: Geek Shock.
1: shock. Before my number's up, I'm going to fill my cup. I'm going to live, 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 live until I die. Welcome, folks, to Geek Shock number
2: 576. <laughs> I am Master Torgo. 80's Jeff. Commander K.
1: Fact, check, Andy. Professor Biggs.
2: Yay! Yay! Welcome, Yay! Professor! And we're here to talk week and geek. Uh, we originally yeah. weren't going to have a special guest this week. It was just going to be kind of like core Geek Shock. Uh, but once again, we didn't have Matt this week. So we're wow. so glad that you, uh, you filled in for the uh, Anger Canadian. So, can you give us uh, Angry Canadian? Is that something you can do? Oh no,
1: duty booty! Did you say <laughs> no duty booty? You ever, you ever crossed paths with me. Oh, Canadian is not
3: in your repertoire.
1: How how dare you? Oh, I'm going to take you behind the Tom' Hortons and just uh, and and you'll see what's for. <laughs>
4: Tom, Tim Hortons? Is the, uh, Tom Hortons is the off-brand Tim Hortons when they can't use
0: the actual <laughs> <I laughs> name. I, th-
2: I think he's an author from Upper Saskatchewan. <laughs> also, <laughs> ska-
4: also Saskatchewan is Upper. Yeah. <laughs> Tom
2: is, uh, it, it's, it's been another geeky week. What geeky things you do with it? Professor, what did you do?
1: well I have been continuing my rewatch of deep space 9 i I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised at just how much how many things they set up in the first couple of seasons that I wrongly remembered being in later seasons uh, they set up the Dominion actually pretty early they set up uh, they set up a whole bunch of stuff I was having a conversation a Facebook conversation with somebody and he he was talking about how oh it's his least favorite uh, show and I'm like you know what I, I admit to being a late fan of the show, mostly because, you know, I got into it more when I was actually working at Star Trek, the experience, but there's a lot going on there. And a lot of things that irked me the first time I watched it, I now actually think are really pretty cool. The whole Kai Winn stuff. I was like, Oh my God. But now that I'm binging it, it's a pretty nice arc. And I think what they did with uh, with Nog's character over the course of the series, I, I, you know, again, I'm surprised at how early they set up him wanting to be in Starfleet. It's been a pretty fun, fun ride. I'm kind of in the middle of season three. So, you know, we haven't we haven't gotten Worf on on board yet. But um, yeah, it's 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 been a real fun rewatch. And then uh, again, I, uh, you know, the the remastered uh, Babylon five is on HBO Max. And so I've been giving that a a, a watch, uh, you know, trying to figure out where I left off when it was just on Amazon Prime. I remember back in the day there was kind of a big rivalry between you know Babylon Five and Deep Space Nine. They're they're both kind of on par, uh, you know from from my from my current rewatch. A lot of political intrigue in both, a lot of cross cultural stuff in both. I'd say they're they're comparable to each other. It's been kind of fun.
4: I have a lot of Star Trek I could. I mean, I have not seen. I could. There's a. I mean, when that came out, that was before streaming services, so it was like, oh, I missed that. I fuck it, I missed two or three episodes. I'll just, I'll see it another time. I'll just, uh, yeah. But then now uh, I probably should go back and rewatch all that stuff and catch up on the holes. I know I didn't see the end of uh, of um, Deep Space Nine or uh, Voyager, and I oh. never saw more than an episode or two of Enterprise.
1: Yeah, uh, we we had uh, finale um, episode festivities at Star Trek: The Experience. Uh yes, when, we did. When, when Deep Space Nine and Voyager went off, it's pretty nice, pretty fun being in a giant in a room full of Trekkies. I mean, we had them on every screen in the place, so you didn't have to be in Quark. You could be in you could be in one of the retail shops, you could be <laughs> anywhere, and it was playing, and it was it was pretty wild. Well, do you remember when
3: they had the actual like they they showed it twice? They had it for the the general room, and then they had the cork side completely sealed off with a curtain for that, that special screening of the finale before they showed it to the rest of the facility. Cause, uh, I, I remember us getting that. I'm like, what's going on here? And I was like, Oh, well, it's a VIP screening and then the rest of the place will get it. And like, even those of us that were working that night weren't allowed to go behind the curtain. Yeah. Uh, if we weren't There's assigned a... to the room. And I was like, this is really weird. Yeah. How,
4: how did Mattel Barrett get her watered down drinks
3: in? <laughs> oh. oh, she wasn't there that night.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. I, it's funny that you mention that because when you start talking, I go, I don't remember that. Oh, because we weren't allowed in there. That's why I don't remember yeah. that.
3: <laughs> but uh, speaking of Deep Space Nine, uh, and you were talking about Nog and his evolution, I love his evolution through that show. One of my favorite scenes is still when he's talking to Cisco about how, why he wants to be in Starfleet. And he talks yeah. about... Not wanting to be like his father or like his uncle, and he, I mean, just the raw emotion, even through all that makeup, is palpable. Yeah. And yeah. i just, I was just so impressed with Aaron Eisenberg and his performance, and you know, the whole series. Um, but yeah. that, that's one of the scenes that stands out. Not to mention later on when he's having the conversation with Vic von Fontaine about his, uh, his leg. And but uh, in yeah. regards it- to Babylon Five, I also remember Straczynski. You know, there are a lot of people like, oh, it's a blatant ripoff because he shopped it to Paramount before blah, 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 blah. Even Straczynski came out and said, look, the only commonality is they're both space stations away from Earth. It's like, but they're two very different shows, thematically very different, two completely different stories. And he holds nothing against the fact that they both came out around the same time. So, yeah, I thought that was cool of him, though.
1: Yeah, and and again, you, if you if you watch both, yes, they're sci-fi. Yes, they're in space. Yes, the aliens are all humans with lumpy foreheads. But beyond right. that, yeah, you're right. They're completely different stories. Anything uh, else you
2: did that you want to talk about, Steve? I'm
1: trying to think. I, I've been having a I've been having a, a Sherlock Holmes phase going on here. I um, just before Christopher Plummer uh, died, I just got a you know they were having a sale and you know, one of the DVD places. And so I got murdered by decree. Nice. Uh, And then another friend pointed out, well, you know, there's an earlier Sherlock Holmes versus uh, Jack the Ripper movie. I go, yeah, I do remember that. I think I've seen it. It's called a study in terror. And so just out of curiosity, I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. I went ahead and bought that. It's, it's not better. (laughs) It's John Neville plays Holmes. He's really good. Okay. Uh, Robert Morley plays Mycroft in it. He's entertaining, but he's not the Mycroft that I I would picture. And the guy who plays Watson, Donald Houston, runs between meh and borderline annoying. Uh, and again, the sh- the movie was done in the '60s, and they were still kind of patterning all their all their Watsons on uh, you know Nigel Bruce's version. So he's kind of a you know a little bit of a dimwit. I wouldn't say it's better. It's different and it's okay. And, you know, to be honest, Murder by Decree is not a great movie, but I think, I think Murder by Decree is helped by the fact that by the time that movie came out, a lot more facts about the Ripper case had been made public. And even though it uses a very, very, very debunked uh, theory as to who Jack the Ripper was, it's still a much more compelling trail for Holmes to follow than the one in uh, Study in Terror. Which is very much a product of its time. Oh, and then I uh, I uh, got the uh, had finally found the silent movie version of Sherlock Holmes uh, with William Gillette. William Gillette being the first actor to ever play Holmes. Gillette was a a playwright and actor in the late 1800s, early 1900s in America, and apparently was a big fan. And the story there is is he wrote Conan Doyle and and said, "Do you mind if I marry him?" And Doyle's response, because he was in his in his I hate Holmes phase at that point, he goes, he goes, he goes, marry him, kill him off, do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, you see, this and... is why
2: I like to have the professor on the show. He elevates us. He elevates yeah. us into <laughs> a a more respectable show.
3: It gives us some legitimacy.
1: Oh well, let me get yeah. some red. Uh, some uh, fireball in me, and we'll we'll write. <laughs> <laughs> we'll derail
3: that real quickly.
1: <laughs> well, we'll, we'll
4: get back to our previous conversation where you're doing
1: uh,
4: pillow talk as um, Pat, but- Pat doing uh, pillow. <laughs> Mr. Haney, technically doing uh, a yeah. pillow talk. William, William Gillette has uh, had a crazy house here in Connecticut, which is now a park, as national park, and it's you can well in theory you can tour his, his what they call Gillette's Castle, which is this incredible structure overlooking the Connecticut river. It's just beautiful. And the grounds are beautiful. And at the height of it, when he was still living there before, you know, he passed away and donated the thing to the state, there was a train that ran from the ferry on the river up to his house. And that's now a hiking trail because the train's long gone, but yeah, it's just an amazing place to go.
1: One of the special features on on the silent movie thing is a movie tone interview with him. Late in life of him driving his little mini train with some guests on it around his around his uh, estate. I have not been inside the castle. I've been on the grounds of the castle a couple of times
4: and I've, I was there this spring.
2: Well, um, Andy, you said theoretically you could tour. Well, what does COVID that mean?
4: Time. It's COVID times. You can't oh, OK. Time. OK.
2: I thought there was something else involved besides the. the
4: no, no. It's just uh, yeah, In mean, the the fact when I was down there this spring. They were doing a pretty major renovation out there, fixing stuff up because it it looks like a big stone castle overlooking the, but it is a big stone castle overlooking the Canadian River. It's just amazing. I mean, it's it's overlooking in that it is on um, a precipice, probably 100 feet above the river. Oh. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. So, Andy, what did you do this week? I, uh, my dad and I had an unintentional Daniel Craig film festival. It was intentional eventually. But no, I uh, found Defiance on one of the streaming channels. A day or so later, I ran across Baru to Perdition. was on there, and I hadn't seen that since I saw it in the theaters. Damn, that's a good movie. I'd forgotten that. I knew it was good, but I'd forgotten how good that is. So it was Defiance. And then, to, you know, just because at that point, my dad was, who is who's this guy? And so we watched uh, Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> not, not as good. Not as good, but it's better than I'm better than I remembered.
3: I had the same thing, Andy. I watched it again recently or I caught it like halfway through on HBO and I'm like, this isn't as bad as I thought I remember it being.
4: Yeah. Mm. I thought it being pretty bad. It was actually very watchable. And then uh, uh, finish finished it up with Spectre. We may go and watch Knives Out at some point too, but we, we've seen four movies by him this week. That's pretty significant. Yeah. And then I, uh, finish up my, uh, my unlock escape room adventure, uh. Aha, yay! I had The trilogy uh, is complete! Yes, uh, I did terrible. Um, <laughs> this is, this is the one Hard. that was, uh, the first two I did were difficulty level one out of three. Yes. This one was level two out of three. I actually timed it this time, although I did see there's a feature to time it, but, uh. My actual runtime on the game was eight minutes over the hour I was allotted, which isn't too bad.
2: Not but, horrible. You know,
4: at at the end of the hour the room was supposed to explode, so dead is dead. Uh-oh. Um <clears throat> Yeah. But uh the actual time it showed was uh an hour thirty two because every time you enter a wrong code and there were a lot of codes in this particular game, it docks off a minute or two. In fact, almost always two in this case. Um and some of the clues were there was, you entered a code and it played a clip that was backwards. And oh my! I, blah, 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 I'm like, I played it like 50 times. Like I can't make out that, that is backwards. So yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was it was some serious challenge to it. Apparently, I have I'm out of the three that that uh, John and Terry gave me, but now I went out to the uh, we got a pretty good Barnes and Noble near us, and I picked up one for 15 bucks. It's called Exit, the Sunken Treasure. This one is level two out of five, so we'll see how it goes. Maybe not this week. I may, now, may need a break from these.
2: My understanding is the difference between the Unlock games and the Exit games is the Unlock game works on a card system that makes it kind of replayable. I don't know if you would want to replay it, but you can give it to somebody else and they can play it. My understanding, the Exit game, you're actually tearing up some things and you're, you're interacting yeah. and physically manipulating the pieces, so when you play Exit It only gets one play.
4: Yeah, Yeah, that's what it says on the the box. But according to some... I looked online and it said, seemed to think you could get away without tearing it up. But we'll find out.
1: Uh, That's... The exit one is the one that that we played. And You're pretty much... I mean, we ripped up the box and everything to to play it. So good luck with the replay on that. (laughs) Jesus. So this is the
4: one you were talking about where you actually were pulling codes off UPC labels and stuff? yeah. Yeah. Oh
2: man. Oh. <laughs> like Gloomhaven. You you play it to make it yours.
4: Yeah. Yes, well. Some people put stickers on it, but you are you are a purist.
2: <laughs> you play that right. It's a legacy game. You mark that shit up. You <laughs> rip up those cards. Or make Kirsten rip up those cards cuz it hurts him more. <laughs> <laughs>
0: at least he lets me save the the ripped card so it i'm not i'm not completely shattered <laughs> but it's pretty awful
4: <laughs> let me hop back to road to prediction for a second You remember the the kid in that
0: yes superman
1: yes yeah. exactly i, I was like,
0: oh, shit yeah
1: speaking of Tyler Hecklin i talked when last time I talked to my optometrist I talked about maybe getting lasik finally and he gave me some brochures for the two places that that he likes to use and on the back of them was a testimonial from Tyler H. I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I might be going to the same place to get LASIK that Superman went. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't get be X-ray Tyler vision?
2: Hillstrom or Tyler Hicks.
1: <laughs> no, no. There was a picture of him. There was a oh. picture.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but, but will you get X ray vision? We'll find out. I'm sure that depends on the type of uh, lens you get. I might have to have my left lens actually replaced because it looks like I'm developing a cataract in there. So, oh no! So no, I'll make sure that we put the X-ray, the X-ray uh, lens in that one.
4: Cataract uh, cataract operation is fine. Don't worry about it. It sounds scary as hell, but it's wonderful.
3: Well, uh, you, uh, you you seemed pretty uh, miserable with it for the 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 couple weeks after you had it done, Andy. No, I think you're thinking of the uh, detached retina, which is a much bigger problem. Maybe that's yeah, what I'm
0: thinking of. It's actually true. I used to I used to think about that too. As like, boy, Andy did have a problem, didn't he? And then I'm like, oh no, wait a minute. He had, uh... and you said it was genetic, right, Andy? Uh, some of it's genetic.
4: It is. It is one of the possible side effects of uh, cataract surgery, though. So. You shouldn't ignore it completely, but, uh, you know, it, it's a risk. But the my vision after the cataract surgery was improved by leaps and bounds. Like, for a while, because they only do one eye just in case, you know, something goes horribly wrong. They only right. do one eye at a time. And there was, like, two weeks where I could close one eye and see what it looked like before and close the other eye and see what it looked like now. And so I, I did a
1: Photoshop and showed what my vision was like.
0: That was uh, impressive.
1: Yeah, so far it's just my left eye. I, I Left eye's like got a 10% cataract. My right eye's got like a 1%. So I'll eventually wow. have to do the right eye as well. But the left eye is the one that needs the... <laughs> Here we and are, an old age shock. <laughs> no,
0: no. If,
4: if you live long enough, you, you are likely to have cataracts on both sides. It's just part of the aging process. Yeah.
3: I want to know what happened to the laser cataract surgery that was supposed to be the new big thing you know, like a decade ago. And now well, they're I still think, doing the physical surgery where they put the, the scalpel to the eye.
0: I think the, uh, the thing, Jeffrey, is that they no longer remove cataracts. They now just replace your lens. Because yeah. remember, yeah. back in the old days, they used to pull the cataract out of your lens. And they don't mm, really but, do that anymore. They just well, go ahead and replace the actually, lens. Actually, yeah. what
4: they do is they, they it's not a scalpel. Uh, they okay. take a needle and shove it into your eye and wiggle it around and scramble up your lens, and then suck the lens pieces out of the needle.
3: <laughs> yeah, that sounds now, so much now, more now pleasant.
4: Wait, now, wait, wait, wait. Now, of course, once <laughs> you... Wow,
1: <is so laughs> Steve, you are right there? <laughs> no, I hate eyeball stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh my when, God. You, oh, when you become... You're in when trouble.
4: You become, when you become unconscious... Your eyes roll up to the top of your head. That's just the way right. the brain, the body works. Right. So, in a, for them to do this surgery or procedure, <laughs>
0: yeah.
4: so Whoa. you have to be conscious while they stick a needle in your eyes. <laughs> <scrambling>
0: <laughs> Todd, is out. there a way we can, we can do a, a geek shock on location recording of Steve <laughs> getting his cataract surgery? <laughs> we might have to. <laughs> oh,
4: now, <laughs> now the, uh, the good side of this, Steve, is that when I had my surgery, they put the needle in my eye for the, uh, you know, for the uh, drugs. They give you really good drugs. And they had me open my eye, and they put a big sticker over my eye to keep my eye open. And then I thought, as I was laying there, well, that sticker doesn't have a hole in it. They're going to have to cut a hole in that to get to my eye. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up. So there's conscious, and there's conscious. I don't remember <laughs> a bit of it.
3: Oh, they gave you, you know, an, an amnesiatic. And
4: I was uh, I was as worried as you I was as worried as you, Steve, when I when they were describing the surgery. Uh, I met my surgeon once before the surgery. She was uh, she had a thick Slavic accent. And I said, What what if I blink? What if I move my eye while the needle's in there? And she goes, I, I will yell at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I will yell. We stick the needle and eye, we swirl, 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 swirl. You you will be knocked out. You- <laughs> If you feel pain, suck it up. Uh, Be strong like bull.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, Steve. I think that would sound better as Mr. Haney.
1: (laughs) He's telling you about this eyeball thing. In Soviet
3: Russia, it is not eye of needle, it is needle of eye.
1: We have a new procedure direct from France where they (laughs) stick the (laughs) needle in your eye. But give you a croissant while you're doing it.
2: <laughs> oh, Steve, just have him give you ketamine. You'll be begging for the next eye.
1: <laughs> yeah. What you guys aren't seeing is the full body reaction of all this eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> is the leg kicking? the? the oh, the, good. For,
2: for a second there, I thought you were the, telling me the, you had I, a boner.
1: I, yeah.
4: <laughs> I have the weirdest boner right now. That
2: <laughs> uh, Speaking of boners, Jeff, what'd you do this week?
3: Uh, so I did a couple That's of things. That's a long um, story, right? Um, <laughs> I, I finally got to watch Tenet. Uh, ah, you know, I watched it at home, obviously, but uh, you know, it's definitely a movie you can tell was developed to be shown on the big screen. But uh, I, I enjoyed it. It's got a different take on the whole twisting with time kind of uh aspect. Cast is fantastic. Denzel Washington's son whose name is escaping me right now. And and it took me forever to realize that it's Denzel Washington's son. He's uh he's really good in it. John David Washington is his name. Yeah. That's uh uh Denzel Washington's son. An interesting you'll, you'll recognize a lot of the cast but you won't necessarily know they are they're they're players that you've seen in a lot of other movies you mean like robert pattinson well pattinson i I hadn't gotten to pattinson yet but i'm talking like there's a lot of people in it that you'll say oh i recognize him towards the end of the movie you have um oh the guy from kick-ass who's i'm blanking out on right now aaron taylor yeah yeah, aaron taylor johnson thank you uh so yeah um
4: isn't that that, um uh quicksilver
3: yeah one of them it's, a lo- it's, a, it's about two and a half hours, so the story is a slow burn because there's a lot going on that they're trying to set up for the, the end of the film, but it's not a slow burn as in you're like bored, you're like, oh, get on with it. You're just like, okay, I understand what you're doing there, and then moving on, oh, okay, now I get this, okay, now I get this. So it, it's definitely building blocks.
1: That was one that I braved the uh, movie theaters when they were open a short time here and purposely went midweek, matinee. Social distancing took care of itself. Nice. <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, it's completely incomprehensible. And I'm like, I guess if you're not paying attention. It yeah, probably you really is. have
3: to be paying attention.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the reasons it is so long is uh, Nolan does make it a point to kind of explain what's going on either just after it happens or just before it happens. So he does a real good job of kind of connecting the dots of here's why all this weirdness is happening. I really don't see how you could really get lost in it again, unless, again, you're just not paying attention. But
3: Yeah, I mean, I I could kind of understand if you have some of the, uh, you know, I'm on my cell phone while I'm at the movie theater crowd, (laughs) which is kind of one of the reasons I like Galaxy, where if they see you with your phone or if somebody reports you with your phone, or your phone, rather they, they kick you out immediately. They don't even they don't give you any uh, any time to defend yourself. They just escort you out. No refund. Period. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You you got to avoid the poon when you're
3: when you're in the movie. <laughs> I said poon, but uh, uh, sure, you're if you want to go out? That's fine. You're ass- dude. You
2: got to pay attention to tenant. You don't have time for the poon. <laughs> <laughs> Hey baby,
0: want to go see Tenet? Actually no, sweetie. I I really got to pay attention to the movie. So
2: <laughs> So Jeff, what else you do this week?
3: Uh I went on a bit of a uh documentary kick. There's a good one that just uh showed on HBO called The Lady in the Dale, and it's about this car company that was started in the 70s that uh, was called 20th Century Motors, and they were trying to introduce a car called the Dale which was a three-wheeled vehicle that was supposed to cut gas usage because of the gas shortage. And uh, it was founded by a uh, transgender woman. And it's a really fascinating study about uh, what it was like to be transgender in the 70s, not to mention the fact that she was a con artist and all the chaos that ensues because the Dale actually never made it to production it's a four part series they just dropped the fourth part so i haven't got a chance to watch that one yet but the the other three episodes are really intriguing and then the other documentary i watched was called night stalker the hunt for a serial killer and it's about the uh the los angeles and then san francisco night stalker killings uh, where they eventually did catch the uh the guy i want to say like in the early 80s they caught him but it's from the perspective of the detectives that were um Hunting this guy, and uh, it's also a fascinating study about going through the investigation process and and how they were able to track this guy down. So, if you get a chance, check both of those out. Uh, Lady in the Dales on HBO or HBO Max. Night Stalker is on Netflix.
2: All right, Kay, what did you do, my friend?
0: One thing I did this week was uh, I just watching this uh, this series on YouTube, Landom C kind of a, a reviews and, and just briefly talks about older movies. This one was about The Getaway, a Steve McQueen movie. Mm. That actually just kind of motivated me to watch the movie because I'd never seen it before. And it was one of those things where actually I had seen it when I was a little kid because I'm watching this movie and I'm remembering bits and pieces and asking my parents questions and stuff. And it was one of those weird memory things where you haven't thought of it, haven't thought of anything in like 30, 40 years. And then here's this stuff you're remembering as you're watching the movie. So that was a very interesting experience and, and an interesting movie, interesting enough. And, uh, did the Valentine's game run by, uh, Elena. Uh, Steve uh, was there too.
4: <laughs> I didn't realize what that was at first. I'm like, what the hell is the Valentine's
0: game? It's a- this is going to be a story. Oh, that's pretty it's, simple. Okay. It's kind of like the parent trap, except yeah. uh, there's not
2: as much Haley Mills.
0: <laughs> right. It's a D&D game that uh, one shot that Elena ran uh, for a few of us. I uh, got to play a character I wanted to create for a long time now, the Rouge Rogue and because uh, i've always wanted to have a character like that to really mess up people who just can't spell rogue to save their lives <laughs> so we did that had some fun there then i went down i went down the rabbit hole because of you todd what what was this the, the, the thing that happened all because of you i actually went ahead and uh in desperation for some kind of D&D like novelization I uh, I got on my Kindle the First Dragonlance book.
2: Oh, the <laughs> Weiss and Hickman series.
0: Yes, and I got Autumn, uh Dragons of Autumn Twilight and I've started reading it. I've been doing that a lot actually. I've just been doing a lot of reading.
2: How do you feel about that series thus far? It's an old from the 80s fantasy series.
0: Yeah, it's it's like the before Drizzt The Dark Elf came along. It was the D&D tie-in series. And uh, for many people, it still is. And it was interesting because, you know, tie-in books are not known for their editorial rigor. I was expecting uh, something that would be really bad and amateurish. And actually, it's rather serviceable as a professional uh, commercial fantasy novelization. So that was one thing that actually kind of surprised me. I'm interested enough in the in the first book and reading it through. So it has been kind of interesting.
2: If I remember right, there's only three books in that f- actual Dragonlance series. And then there's a bunch of spinoffs from that, right?
0: Spinoffs, prequels,
2: um, all
0: sorts of stuff like that. There may have been actually sequels. I don't know. But the trilogy is what you're talking about, I guess. Yeah. But. There, there are a bunch of Dragonlance books. So, this book starts off with the the company, you know, the adventuring party coming together after five years of being apart. So, right there, you've got your your outlet for your prequels, where the company is actually built, people get to know each other, and stuff like that. I assume you know, there's a bunch of those. I haven't looked too deeply into it because I never really gave Dragonlance, you know, much thought. Um, tie-in books one of the reasons why they suffer a bit in quality is because overall their deadlines are really tight you'll have 90 days from signing the contract to turning in your first draft it shows it shows in a lot of in a lot of the novels but weiss and hickman whether they had more time or they really hit their stride and knew what they were doing it actually was not uh, boy, I, I don't know how to say this without saying being sounding really obnoxious about it, but it's it's not bad like you know I kind of figured it would be. So as as a D and D fill in, it certainly uh, is doing its job.
1: You forgot the main fun feature of the one shot game. It was mostly bards.
0: Yeah, I, was oh, it? Gee, did I did I forget mentioning that? Oh, golly. <laughs> um. So yeah, when and they I saved the day, I, yeah. I I went to uh, sign up and I saw I saw like a listing for me, Kirsten, not a bard, and I was like, what, what? And I I, I messaged Elena about that, and she said, well, I know you hate bards, so you don't have to do one if you don't want. And I'm like, well, I'll do a. I guess I could do a rogue. And then I was like, this sounds perfect for the Rouge rogue. And so I just built the character, had fun making him in hero forge too. He's like, he's all red and stuff. So, and then of course, Steve, uh, Steve uh, was his bard, uh, Neil Zircon. Fine name.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. My love was on the rock. Now I'm a solitary man. Oh No. (laughs) (laughs)
0: oh my god yeah yep that was that was neil (laughs) oh bards are the best oh my god you have such disdain
3: for bards kay
0: yeah well actually the truth is is i mean because they were they were horribly designed prior to fourth edition bards weren't worth worth anything they were it was just an awful design and and a really trashed concept that just didn't come together Uh. But I have to admit, fifth edition and fourth edition, in its own way, actually came up with mechanically sound, workable bards. Now I just, I just hate them on uh, on general concept.
2: Yeah, <laughs> in the in the original D anD D, they were like an afterthought. They were in the appendices, I think, of what the Dungeon Master's book right. or they in the and Players Manual.
0: The, I think it was in the PHB. Okay. And, uh, you you actually had to go through multiple classes to get there. You had to start as a fighter and then do some time as a magic user, and I think even as a rogue or and a cleric. I I forget, but the bard was not just like some dude who sings. It was. Gygax had this idea of this really magically invested kind of uh, character, and you just had to work at getting it. And, of course, people abused the hell out of it, and so Bards got stupid. And, yeah, Bards and, then and they they, assassins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then they tried uh, making it more into a character-type thing, and 4th Edition was the first time when I saw that it was something actually playable and reasonable. I remember your bard, Todd. Yeah. Uh, and Gert. And and then 5th edition, yeah, 5th edition, they, they finally nailed it down and they fixed it. So
2: Honestly, I think in role-playing, bards, they didn't get them right until they released the Bard's Tale role-playing game for the Apple and Commodore back in the 80s. <laughs> because that's when I first saw the concept of Okay, this is a character that casts a spell, and the spell go- keeps going until their throat runs dry. And then you have to give them beer to be able to cast another <laughs> one. Uh, That's where I fell in love with the bard. Oh my <laughs> and thank you again, Jeff Harris, for my bard shirt. I, I absolutely adore it. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, Jeff, good job. <laughs> My my time is almost to a close. This week, I n- will no longer have access to CBS All Access, so I've been going on a tear. Uh, again, thank you, Jake, for making it happen. Uh, the Stand ended this week with a brand-new epilogue from Stephen King. Uh, I liked it. I-, I thought it's a better ending than what we've gotten thus far. Uh, I- again, the-, the Stand as a show has its problems. I think they did the best to fit it into the time that they had to compress it into, and a lot of characters really got sacrificed to it, Uh, Nick Andros in particular, uh, Trash Can Man as well. But overall, not bad. I I don't think it's anything worth getting CBS All Access for, but if you already have CBS All Access, uh, I'd say go ahead and watch The Stand. Uh, And if you're a huge fan of the book, you're going to find lots of problems with it. Lots and lots of problems with it.
1: I was kind of looking askance at all the people that were, you know, trashing this new mini series. Cause I thought, eh, you know, it's okay. I, you know, again, nothing to write home about, but then neither was the original mini series from the, from the nineties. But then boy, it got to the, it got to the, the quote unquote ending, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ending of Randall flag thing. And I was like, Oh boy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, and what, what's horrible is that's how the book it ends for him. They they yeah. did a better visual job than what they did in the original miniseries, but th- that's that's what the book is. That's how it's written. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm I'm kind of sad that that wasn't changed, but <laughs> uh, the I did like the epilogue. I think that ended the story better than the novel did, and that the original miniseries did. So kudos, King, to that. Uh, but again, I don't think it's anything just like. Do I get CBS All Access slash Paramount Plus to watch the stand? No. But if you're going to get it anyway and you got some time to spare, um, check out the stand. Yeah. Uh, that also being said, I also finished all of Discovery Season 2. Nice. Uh, I, I liked it overall, I was entertained. It's definitely a season that you don't want to think too hard about when it's done. <laughs> Uh, if, if, if you, you kind of got to have to turn off your brain for it and just let it go, because then if you start thinking about, Oh wait, what about this? They never went back to, there's a lot of dropped plot points, especially at the beginning of the season.
4: I found that when I was rewatching the, uh, original series, they would be some incredible leap forward in technology they had access to, and they never used it again.
1: Yeah, that's the nature of yeah. sci-fi back in the day.
2: And, and it, it's not it's not that. There's a we've already got that there's a red angel overall arc. And there is a point in the early part where the red angel appears, and that's the whole aspect of the whole arc is all these red angel appearances across the galaxy that they never brought up again. There's like an extra appearance at the beginning of the show that that's never even it's like, wait a second. What about that one? That one was so it's, but I will say this, that show has a lot of unearned crying there. And and even going into third season, there's almost not an episode that goes by that. Somebody doesn't tear up about something. And most, mostly it's the uh, Michael Burnham character, uh, but Mm -hmm. not always. But every single episode has somebody crying, and I, I and I think that hurts the emotional thoroughfare because there's a lot of emotional things happening in the second season, but I didn't feel affected by most of it. And mm-hmm. I think part of it is because there isn't that kind of lull of having an episode where there's joy. Where before somebody else hits an episode of sadness, it's like an episode of sadness to an episode of sadness to an episode of sadness to an episode <laughs> of sadness, and you and you stop being affected by it. And again, that goes into the third season. I am uh, six episodes into season three. You could you could do a betting pool for this <laughs> show for each episode. Okay, at what minute mark is somebody going to cry? Wow. Yeah. And I I'm talking as somebody who cries at the drop of a hat. And I, I will cry in the moment in Hell's Kitchen where a family member comes to visit one of the uh, champions toward the final ending of it. I know it's coming. It happens every season. Uh, but then the girlfriend or the wife or the mother says, and here's your your family member that you haven't seen during this time. And they, they cry and hug because they missed each other so much. I will well up for that. I will well <laughs> up in a TV commercial if it has the right music. But I cannot <laughs> find myself doing that in this show and and I think it is because there is the there is such a height of tension and a height of action and a height of circumstance that is happening in every single episode that it never has a time to breathe.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. I think I think that's a pretty good call. I think you've hit the nail on the head for why that is. A lot of a lot of the websites I go to, they're just going, "Yeah, everyone's crying again." It's like, okay, well, why is that necessarily a bad thing? But I think you've hit on why that is possibly necessarily a bad thing. If if it happens all the time, then it's nothing new. It's like, as as a friend of mine used to say when we did the murder mystery dinner, dinner theaters, you can have more than one emotional event happen in a show. yes indeed
2: and again i enjoyed it overall and i really liked how it ended and how it set up the third season being halfway through through the third season third season takes such a tonal shift and changes the show in a fundamental way that i absolutely love the third season they have freed themselves from so many shackles that has hampered it thus far and they're able to tell stories now that make it feel like they're finally exploring some neat and new
1: ideas. Yeah.
2: It's starting to feel like Trek again in the third season.
1: Yeah. I was telling somebody that, that the third season of discovery is kind of the show that I would have pitched for like a post Voyager show. Uh, in in the Berman universe because voyagers coming back to a galaxy that has been torn apart by the Dominion war how many how many systems did leave the federation how many you know what is the balance of power in the in the alpha quadrant now and discovery is kind of kind of doing that it 's kind of scratching that itch for me so yeah i i agree the the
2: third season finally adds something that the other ones didn't And that is the aspect of discovery. No one's dealing with the war. No one is dealing with some galaxy ending event. There's bad stuff happening in three, but there's so much new things to discover and they take a few moments to do that while still telling that full story of season three. It's, it's taking those moments to breathe and I'm finding myself finally after after two seasons emotionally involved with what's going on where the, the other ones, I was enjoying the action. I was enjoying the story, uh, but I'm finally, I'm happy to be there. Uh, I'm hoping to be able to finish it before I, I lose the, but CBS all access, it's going to be a a close fight. It's going to be real close. (laughs) Uh, But I'm enjoying three so much that uh, I, I want to devote time to it. Are you watching the commercial free version? Yes. Yeah. I didn't know there was, is there a commercial version of CBS All Access?
4: Yeah, it's it's, yeah. Uh, okay. it's six bucks a month for, with commercials and ten bucks a month without them.
2: Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. been commercial free thus far. Uh, one, one other thing I have an issue with season, well, Discovery overall, is I've talked about the inconsistent tone throughout, and I think part of that is a hampering in the writing. There is some writing in this show that I think is outright bad. And a lot of that is that Trek has always had an elevated language to it, It's uh, not to the level of Shakespeare, but when you're listening to Star Trek through all the iterations thus far, uh, it's always had this way of talking that is a Trek speak. When we worked at Star Trek, the experience, w- that was something that was discussed when you were doing character floor work is that you had to have that kind of elevated Trek talk down uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, if, if, you found, if you came off too casual, you wouldn't sound Star Trek. Uh, this show gets way too casual in its talk. Some characters stay in that elevated Star Trek speak. Uh, other characters don't. Uh, for example, uh, the Tilly character is almost never uh, speaking tre- Trekkies. Yeah. There is a point in season two which I rolled my eyes so hard I almost gave myself a headache. And and that is at th- toward the end of season two, uh, one of the characters says, "I basically I want to make this guy hurt." And the other person goes, "Yum yum." That's not Star Trek language. <laughs> yeah, I like the character of Tilly a lot. Uh, what what saves Tilly for me is the actress portraying her is so charming. Yeah, but almost everything out of her mouth as if as if somebody from our time. Somehow got transported to the future of Star Trek, and kind of found themselves on the ship, and yeah. I, that's and I think and that's obviously a choice they made. Yeah. But I don't. But it makes the tone of the show shift a lot.
1: Yeah. How do you feel about uh, uh, Tignatero's engineer character? Because I. I love that character, but it she definitely falls into what exactly what you're talking about.
2: It's the exact, it's that exact same thing. I, I like her as a comedian. I like her as an actress, uh, but whenever she speaks, she's she's speaking TikTok. She's not talking in <laughs> the Star Trek ease.
1: Right, right, right,
2: and and it comes off as these people are not existing in this time. These people are from our time, and are yeah. just talking another language in Trek world.
3: Do you feel like it's that the entire Discovery ship is kind of slightly outside of Starfleet? Because that seems like, to me, what you're talking about is what they've set the show up to be. Is like, this is a Starfleet ship, but it is completely different from any other ship and crew in Starfleet. That's how it came across to me. Is that... Is that what you're also feeling, and that might be leading into what you're saying that's like, there, this isn't Trek or this isn't starfleet
2: Ease? If everybody on the ship talked like that, I would say, yeah, I would agree with that statement. But it doesn't. Some characters always talk in Trek-speak, and some never do, and some skirt the way and do both. Like uh, the Michael Burnham character can talk Trekkies, and then all of a sudden when she's talking to, say, Tilly, then they just become very conversational 20th century. Okay. And it goes with, and with this Kurtzman thing that Kurtzman keeps doing also is that he thinks that everybody in Trek listens to stuff from the 20th century, and only that. <laughs> every every <laughs> musical reference, every, even the idioms are, are 20th century idioms. Like there's nothing has happened art-wise in, in hundreds of years. So you think uh, it's an
4: intentional decision?
2: I think it is. I think it's an intentional decision to, one, connect to people that aren't so into Star Trek. Uh, enough Trek in there for people that have loved Trek thus far to say, here you go, Trekkies, This is you, you know this world and we're still playing in this world. But also enough of a change for that, hey, Star Wars people this shows for you too we got lots of action we got lots of pathos uh we've got lots of extra emotion to it and and elevated stakes uh in every show to keep bringing you back and language that doesn't sound so foreign like some of the earlier trek stuff did and not and so formal so we're getting rid of some of that so it it's it's i think it's trying to make everybody happy
3: well i mean it has brought in quite a large audience yes that were not trek fans prior to its release and i think
2: it's successful but as far as a trek show i can see why some of the more hardcore trek people aren't enjoying it and i think these are the reasons why and i also think that if you are a trek person that hasn't enjoyed discovery thus far if you stick with it and go to and get to the third season i think it will win you over
1: I, I completely agree with that. I I was telling people I, I said season three feels very much like they're back in a Star Trek groove. Yeah, um, which I, I thought I'm... they were getting to in season two. I thought I thought back, I thought,
2: uh, back yeah. in a Star Trek
1: groove.
3: Yeah, that was what was going through my head too. Forget <laughs> <laughs> <Again>, Ace Freely. <laughs>
2: And the freedom that they've given themselves with where they've taken the story in the third season, I love what they're exploring with it. So they're, they, they've obviously have cut the tethers and are free to tell their stories now, and it's nice.
3: Yeah, yeah, they've, uh, they've really cut all the constraints that they had prior to.
2: And, and then just, just one last little nitpick. In um, I thought it was really great when they first did, and that's the power of math line in that first season and i thought that's great and a lot of people obviously thought it was great and wrote them a lot of letters because now they won't stop doing it <laughs> yeah. i love science come on people everybody cheer for math i'm okay thank you i, I, I get it it's it, it was great the first couple of times but but let's stop
1: yeah
2: <laughs> but is discovery a reason to uh get cbs all access yes Yes, it is. The first two seasons are good, the third one's great.
1: Yeah. You may not be able to finish it before your your time on CBS All Access is up. But I would say a similar thing happens with lower decks. It starts up one thing and it kind of hits the ground running, but by the end of it, it's a it's a comedy Star Trek show. If if it was live actors, you would go, Yeah, this is still Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I really liked it. Uh, Todd yeah, wasn't neither. enjoying it too much, as he said last week. So
2: Yeah, I've only seen two episodes, so if what Steve has to say, it, it, it definitely would make builds. sense. It definitely builds.
3: And it's only yeah. ten episodes long, so that's, that's a total of two and a half hours of your life.
2: i tell you what, if, if I can finish season three, that is where I will go next. Yeah. Uh, but boy, that's going to be a hard thing to hit, because I think <laughs> I lose it Wednesday, so it's, I've got to get it in fast. That's what she said.
0: God damn it.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> How many people
0: working in Trek post-original series served in the military? How many writers, producers?
1: Ooh,
3: I have no idea. I, 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 I only think a couple, maybe, total.
0: Because I, one of my problems is that, I mean, original series Trek, uh, Roddenberry served in world war ii and of course that was the era when just about everybody did some military service in world war ii one of my problems with the trek overall is the idea of what it takes to be command especially you you see that especially in the uh the kelvin universe movies because they're they're so busy working hard to make uh kirk uh, a kid uh, but at the same time captain as opposed to just like being organic about it. And it's funny because I was thinking of this when Todd made his comment about the crying, because it's like Michael Burnham does an awful lot of crying for someone everybody thinks is awesome command material. <laughs> and it, it's, it's just like the, the, the message of Trek tends to be you're, you're going to be a great commander if you have a, if you have a big giant heart. And there are so many things that go into leadership and command. you know, I sometimes wonder, it's like Alex Kurtzman or uh, Brandon Braga or Ronald D. Moore. It's like, how many of these guys, uh, did you guys really fuck up incessantly when you were on the rise before you became a showrunner, which is a type of leader? Because you guys keep writing these shows about people who fuck up and screw up and tell the boss the uh, fuck off and all this shit. And then, you know, turn around at the end of the day and it's like, you know, you would make an awesome, awesome. <laughs> captain. And it's just sort of like, yeah, you know? And I mean, and that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I like original series and I like Kirk, because I think you see there a captain written by people who actually know a little something and have a little experience with that. Whereas from then on, even when you have your good captains, I think Janeway was actually pretty well written. You really have the, the geeks idea of what an awesome captain should be as opposed to somebody who's had experience and been through that sort of shit. So I was just kind of curious.
3: Well, I mean yeah. Roddenberry made it a point with next gen moving forward that Starfleet was not a military organization yeah, and he but, made but, a conscious-
0: that, but 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 jeff that just that just doesn't fly it just doesn't fly i mean you everyone makes that argument, Steve has made it, you've made it, but it just doesn't fly
1: because well, everyone saying-
0: says that, and then they become military they've got the rank structures, there are court marshals there are there are rules to follow it's all. You can sit there and and say, well, it's you know not really a military organization, but it, you, when you get down to it, it is, and even if it isn't it's not just about military leadership, although I think myself that's immaterial to this discussion
1: i actually agree with kirsten the the argument that it's not military it's like you know, you're protesting too much, captains, yeah. admirals."
3: I mean the structure is definitely there that structure is definitely historical military I think what I was trying to say though was that Roddenberry made a conscious effort with the way that these that Starfleet uh, personnel were portrayed in in Next Gen was that it was not that strict military style that not that strict necessarily uh been to boot camp stripped down and then rebuilt type of uh military training that you would go through in order to be into starfleet they were looking for people who were scientists and engineers and or or aren't always benefited by that clear black and white structure that a lot of military organizations use so i think that was what he was actually getting at versus that it's that it's not quote a military structure it was more about the social structure of starfleet versus a specific Hard, fast set of rules, and then the way that they destroy, uh, or rather, break somebody down, and then reconstruct them in their image.
0: But then they, then they always fall apart with that. By having, you know, uh Jean Luc, you definitely should not do X, and then the whole episode is about Jean Luc doing X, and it's just, you know, it's sort of like, okay, if we're not military, why is an admiral giving him clear cut orders as to what to do? And there, there are so many moments like that. And then, of course, when they go flat-out military, it's yeah. not like they go anywhere else other than Starfleet when the Romulans invade or when it's time to mass forces to fight the Borg or, you know, whatever. They're not grabbing a whole bunch of uh, uh, Rainbow Warrior, uh, uh, you know, whale protection ships to, to deal with the Borg. They're, they're grabbing starships that are armed. So, so that that kind of concept of the military, I think kind of, it kind of slips. And I also think that a lot of it is post Roddenberry anyway. You know, he, he,
3: Oh yeah. His writers fought against him on next gen.
0: Right. He, he, he lost control of TOS before it was over. And, and I heard that his influence on next gen actually waned really kind of early because of his health. And so you get a lot
3: late second season.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine once said, and this was his quote on uh, Next Gen, and but I think it, it sort of can be Star Trek as a whole. It's science fiction written by an intelligent 14-year-old for intelligent 14-year-olds. And I think there's a lot to be said for that in that there's a lot of intelligent 14-year-old sentiment in terms of like what makes a good leader – what makes a good officer, and stuff like that. So I've always had a bit of a problem with that sort of thing. I've I've sat back and accepted it because I realized the realities of Hollywood. I mean, hell, they did that. I mean, Shatner. Shatner at 34 was a compromise in terms of let's get a a young guy doing it. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, Hollywood is like, well, no, we need a 20-something to be captain of a starship. And it's just like... (laughs) (laughs) ah and you know burnham one of the things i'll say is i there's a lot of tell um there's a lot of tell going on in terms of burnham you're going to be a great leader burnham you have to get your own command burnham you're ready for the burnham you're ready for that and then every time she steps up it's a big mess that eventually gets resolved but it's like it's a big mess that gets to resolve and you know in a lot of leadership situations, that doesn't pan out. You have a big mess. and it gets resolved, you still pay the piper at the end of it because, you know, the people above you had to deal with that big mess. And they don't care if it's resolved or not. They're kind well, of pissed. Well,
4: I will I – will, I've, I've been quiet for a while because I haven't watched the series. But jumping across the, to the uh, uh, Seth MacFarlane, um, the Oroville, they mess up all the time and their consequences. And they're always getting, they're like getting written reprimands on their record. Yeah. And then the second episode is all about one of the crew having a baby and they're from an all male race and it's born female. And there's a big argument about whether they're going to allow them to make it, uh, do operation to make it male. And it doesn't resolve in the way you want it to. It resolves in a way that makes a lot more sense for the series, but it is not a happy ending.
0: You know, Andy, and you're just speaking to what Steve has said, and I I think we've all said, sometimes Orville out Star Trek's Star Trek by yeah. car set, it's, yeah. it's actually kind of, it's supposed to be this just little parody knockoff, and they turn around and they do shit like that, which actually just, I think, is admirable and very well thought out. One of the things I loved about the Orville was when Seth MacFarlane is like, well, why, why do you want me to be a captain? And he's got we got too many ships. We got too many ships, not enough captains. So it's you, you know? It's sort of like, you're not the best in the fleet, but, you know, we got to get somebody in that fucking chair. And that's one of the things I kind of admired about that, you know? I don't know. I, I, we've extended this segment way long because of the commentary, yeah. Todd. But that's just, oh, that's okay. It's good stuff. You know, that's the thing I've, I, I've always had
3: if you've ever watched any of the interviews with like DC Fontana or David Gerald, where they talk about their issues with Roddenberry in seasons one and two of next gen, where he was like, there's going to not be any conflict with humanity in the 24th century. And you know, all this groundwork that he laid, he's like, well, but then how are we supposed to write a compelling drama week to week? And uh, that was part of what led to the falling out between Roddenberry and DC Fontana. That's what led to Gerald leaving the series. And then you have, um, you know, Michael Piller and um, Rick Berman. Yes, Berman, you know, Berman and Pillar, who are trying to maintain the style that Roddenberry had established throughout the rest of the, the series. So you have that constant conflict between the writers and the, yeah. you know, and the executive producers who are trying to maintain, quote unquote, Gene's vision. And then them trying to write a compelling drama moving forward. So that might be, in another sense, what you're referring to there, Kirsten, why you didn't like Next Gen.
0: Well, at it, it Next Gen, it was, you know, I was kind of okay, but it, it you could tell the writing staff felt that they had something interesting in Picard and Data. And that's kind of it, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, I I think that they weren't too sure... Or they thought they had ideas for other characters, but it always seemed to fall flat. I remember Will Wheaton talking about his problem as Wesley Crusher was that he had writers who didn't understand what it was like to be a teen, and Mm, couldn't write teen character, you know. And that's why he was dealing with all of that crap. And once again, intelligent fourteen-year-old writing for intelligent fourteen-year-olds. So right, Worf for me, Worf took off in DS9. You can right. tell well, yeah. DS9 staff got a hold of wharf and were like, oh, shit, this is going to be fun, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I admired uh, DS9 so much, because I think the, the writing staff, they, they could really – they did a better job of bracing all of what they had.
3: And they admit that they got away with a lot because yes. the execs were yes. so focused they were on Voyager.
0: Closely, yes. Yes, and I think that's actually a very important point. I'm glad that you brought that up. Because they were. They were they said that they were allowed to get away with all sorts of shit. Which, God bless whomever, praise the great bird, because DS9 is my favorite after-original series.
1: I finally watched the uh, What We Left Behind documentary. And the, the conversations that uh, Iris Stephen Bear and Rick Berman have are really fun and interesting. It's, it's like, yeah, I know. I fought you on having a ship you we are supposed to be the space station show. And now you're asking me to have a ship.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And for me, the introduction of, of the defiant is one of the things that started making deep Space nine feel more like star Trek. I was just having a Facebook argument today about the character of Worf Cause this one guy's like, Oh, I hate Deep space nine. It's like, and when they move warf over from, from next gen, he was my least favorite character in next gen. And they move him to deep space nine. I go, yeah, but, what they did with him on DS9 gave him so much more characterization than than he had so on. Well, that wharf, <laughs> no yeah, wharf. Shut up, wharf, wharf. <laughs> step up
0: to that new life form and get the shit kicked out of you, yes sir. <laughs> you know, it, well, and it's and it's more than just O'Brien, right? O'Brien yeah. grew at DS9 because well, he had everywhere to go because he was just a t- teeny character. In in next gen, Worf wasn't wasn't like that. He wasn't that teeny, but he he still it's just I felt that they never they could never really get a get a good grip on it like they did in DS9. So I think the through stories and the long arcs really helped. But also, like Jeff said, they weren't being watched from up above as much. And so they could they could actually run wild. And I think I think you see that.
3: Voyager was their baby, so they were actively involved in the writer's room in Voyager and sitting in on meetings and stuff, whereas DS9, they're like, well, nobody's here. I wonder if we can do this. Let's, yeah. let's, write, yeah. let's write this in the script and see if we can get it on air.
0: In Voyager, you see the same thing. You can see that the writing room felt that they had something in Janeway, and they had something in the Holographic Doctor, and eventually in Seven of Nine. And you can actually yeah. see that. You know, it's just, uh, I got off on it. I'm sorry. Anyway.
2: No. No. But we do need to carry on because there is some news you don't give a shit about. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) News you don't give a shit about. Uh, Gina Carano, that's it. News you don't give a shit about. Here's the next one.
1: <laughs> uh, wow, well, yeah, keep moving. <laughs> All
2: right, let's uh, <laughs> let's let's get into a little bit. Uh, Gina Carano, who played Cara Dune in the first two seasons of The Mandalorian, will no longer be part of Star Wars. First off, Carano was not fired; she wasn't under contract with Lucasfilm at the time. But it's clear that her actions on social media have caused her to no longer be in Star Wars. Uh, The difference between a firing and not being asked back is an important distinction. Uh, Quote, Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm, and there are no plans for her to be in the future, a Lucasfilm spokesperson said in a statement, continuing the quote, nevertheless, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable, unquote. Uh, Carano has shared several posts that have offended people on social media, the most recent one comparing U.S. political differences to how Jewish people were treated in Nazi Germany. This is not the first time Carano has seen controversy on social media. Previous posts of hers have spread misinformation about mask wearing and the results of the U.S. 2020 election. Uh, She was not asked back because she was spreading harmful rhetoric time and time again on social media and then turns into a problem for a company she works for. Uh Karano's Cara Dune character was a, I don't know if it's a major character, but a significant character in The Mandalorian. And mm-hmm. while she was never confirmed to be part of the upcoming show, Star Wars Rangers of the New Republic, some outlets assumed she would be part of its cast. Karano re- revealed that she is developing a new film project with The Daily Wire, uh, Carano will develop, produce, and star in the film, and it will be produced as part of Daily Wire's partnership with Bone Tomahawk producer Dallas Sanye, who is also a problematic character. Uh, Daily Wire co-founder Ben Shapiro added, quote, We're e- eager to bring Gina's talent to America's Americans who loved her, and we're just as eager to show Hollywood that if they want to keep canceling those who think differently, they'll just be helping us build the X-Wing to take down their Death Star, unquote. Christ, okay. Um, hey,
3: Kay, was it you that post? Had, uh, it was either a repost of somebody talking about, it's not cancel culture, it's merely holding people accountable for their statements and actions? Um, I think <clears throat> somebody put that up on Facebook. I thought it was you, but I could be wrong.
0: It could be a thing about holding people accountable. Yeah, because I'm not I don't I don't go for these things like, you know, there's no such thing as the friend zone. There's no such thing as cancel culture. Um, But at the same time, one of the conservatives favorite adages is play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And they're definitely winning a stupid prize with uh, this commentary. It's just it was gross. Just, just, you know, being having having right wing opinions. Is like being a Jew in, you know, even if she was saying in the early days of Nazi Germany, when the demonization of Jews was starting, is sort of like, that's, you're ridiculous. You're not.
3: The false cry of oppression is ridiculous. Right.
0: And you're not a marginalized
2: minority. Right. The the way I, a wealthy, successful athlete and actress, am being treated makes me feel like a Jewish person during the Holocaust is not a correct statement. Right.
4: No. By you got to make her watch
2: Defiance. <laughs> and I'm not I, talking correctly as far as politically correct. I'm talking about just a correct statement.
1: Yeah. Right, right. It's factually it, right. in error. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't like
3: when she would talk out about people that were responding to her posts because she was only specifically calling out the small minority that were I guess using abusive language but a lot of them were trying to show her that many of her statements were demonstrably false as somebody who has a large following and was respected by a lot of people should maybe do a little more research before posting those things up but now it's completely turned to like everyone's against me and I've you know I'm going to go work against the whole cancel culture thing. It, it's, it's really disgusting, to be honest, because I don't like this whole notion of when there's facts that prove a position that you have is completely false and irrational, that you're saying, well, that's your opinion. No, it's not an opinion. It's fact.
1: That's right. It's an actual fact. The world is yep. round. Yes. <laughs> the sky it's is like- blue. If you want to
3: continue to believe something that is false, sure, that's your right. But trying to tell other people who have reasonable facts and data to back it up that they're wrong or it's, oh, well, that's just your opinion, is ludicrous. Yeah. And
4: her opinion aside or inability to tell facts aside, you know, uh, as a reporter – we were held to certain standards. We were told, you know, don't post yeah. this on Facebook, don't post this on Facebook. Yeah. And she was, wasn't she warned a few times by the producers
2: that I, I've been, I've seen some out, some outlets state that I haven't found anything to corroborate that for right. sure. So well, I, that that's speculative.
3: It's, it's also uh-huh. speculative that she had conversations with co-stars that were like, look, I don't want to tell you what you should or shouldn't do, but, you might want to do a little bit more soul-searching before you post certain things on your social media. Um, I know that she was defended by several of her co-stars initially, but the silence since this last post that led to her quote-unquote being canceled, I I think, is deafening.
2: And and who is more protective of their brand than Disney? The mouse is protected. They won't put anything on Disney+. Plus. If it is R-rated, they very much want the control of what the face of their brand is. And if you are a face of their brand and something happens outside of what they're producing to what they feel make them look bad, they will cut ties with you. Uh, The whole James Gunn incident is a prime example of that. And that was based on... Things that he hadn't said recently. That was things that was said years ago that he had since denounced. And even him coming back to Disney was a big trial in getting that done. The, yeah. He had to make do a lot of talks and they had to do there was a lot of stuff that was involved in getting him backed based on something that he said long, long time ago when he was a completely different person that he isn't anymore and here is her she saying things and continuing to say things that is make disney going um i don't think we want to be associated with this you shouldn't right. be surprised that her contract is not renewed
4: there is a positive out of the whole thing it makes deadpool just a tiny bit funnier
0: <laughs>
4: because there's a, there's a line in deadpool where when wade's you know going underneath going underneath the uh the process and he's all strapped down to the machine he says About her, are you gonna leave me here strapped down next to less angry or more angry uh, Rosie O'Donnell?
3: (laughs) One of the things that got me about this whole thing was that it's like she just I don't know, it's like she's oblivious to anything outside of her own view of the world. Because I know that, and it doesn't seem like that's always been the case, because there's a confirmed story that Pedro Pascal had a conversation with her. Because uh, Pedro Pascal has a transgender sister. Right. And he had had a conversation with Gina Carano regarding some of the things and some of the words that she had been using that were typically used to denigrate, you know, trans or LGBTQ people. And apparently after that conversation, she kind of got it and was like, oh, what I was doing was being disrespectful. So it seemed like maybe there was a step in that right direction. But... You know, maybe old habits die hard. I don't know.
2: Well, when she yeah. puts her pronouns as beep, bop, boop. After that, I don't think yes. there's a lot to really.
3: Well, that was. I think that was before he had the conversation with her because I, I think she deleted it after, from what uh, the article that I read. Um, although, although that brings interview up, with him.
4: Although that brings up an interesting point, uh, the Disney of the past would have. Uh, Probably would have dropped uh, Pascal for supporting his transgender
1: sister. (laughs) Well, yes. If you're talking
2: Disney way back in the past, like actual Walt Disney, probably. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't know. This whole thing is, you know, you talked about before about people, you know, places having, you know, standards of conduct. Every, you know, community theater place that I've ever worked at, even at the colleges, has a thing in their. You know, letters of agreement or contracts about if you do anything to embarrass the company, one of the consequences could be getting fired. This is not Hollywood. This is not, you know, this is not Hollywood cancel call. This is everywhere. If you do something to embarrass the place you work at, you could lose your job. Yeah, it's any corporate contract. Yeah, even down to like, you know, the community theaters I've worked at you know don't post anything about the show that will embarrass the you know embarrass the production or blah 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 or you won't be back for the next show (laughs) so so it's this is nothing new this is nothing new and nothing out there and nothing radical or anything it's if you embarrass your workplace you could lose your job it's the common
3: cry of the quote-unquote oppressed who are ridiculously vocal for somebody that's being oppressed you know it's it's that it's that ridiculous <laughs> yeah. like help help i'm being uh,
2: it's, yeah. it, there there is a culture of victimization on the right there's yeah. yes it's, it's very very apparent shapiro is trying to spin this as you see hollywood just wants to stamp down republican thinking you can't think like a republican and be in hollywood okay tell that to chris pratt or jennifer lawrence kelsey Grammer, uh, clint eastwood mm-hmm. Uh, John Rasenberger. Schwarzenegger. These are all (laughs) vocal Republicans who are not fired because they don't put out trash garbage on social media. Right. You don't get fired for your beliefs. You get fired for saying dumb shit on the internet. Yeah. The weird ma to all of this is that all these trash people are like converging on this Ben Shapiro thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I uh, to, to go back, because the, the partnership that she has in Shapiro is with producer Dallas Saunier. Uh, okay. Dallas Saunier, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's a, been a producer of Indie Pictures for a while. Uh, he produced Bone Tomahawk, a movie that I really, really enjoyed uh, and still do. But he had a partner producer that was caught on tape sexually uh, harassing somebody. And the, the recordings are there if you want to hear them. And he was also arrested oh, I do. For, sex, for sexual advances on a 16-year-old. So, and Dallasonier for years, was covering up his behavior. And so much so that uh, he created uh, Sin Estate way back when. They were the ones that bought and resurrected Fangoria a while back. Right. right as a magazine. Uh, Fangoria cut ties with him. Joe Bob Briggs cut ties with him. Brian Keene was supposed to was involved with making a movie with him. Brian Keene, the author, broke ties with him because of this stuff, and so where does he go? He goes to Ben Shapiro's Daily wire thing so it's yeah. it's it's wild watching all these garbage people try to create this for lack of a better word media empire um
1: I think uh if I'm not mistaken, Kevin Sorbo is also a part of that yes. Uh, Yes, yes,
0: he, he is. is. Yeah, is that, is that the Mythica thing that just Mike was talking about? Because I was getting all set to watch some Mythica, and then Scott Schofield made the comment, I'm looking forward to watching her make a bunch of
2: shitty movies with Kevin Sorbo.
0: And I was like,
2: oh, not Mythica. Uh, I don't <laughs> know. I didn't see anything about Mythica being a part of it, but I don't know enough to answer that question. Just because Sorbo, basically a trash person in this same regard,
3: yeah, I, There's I love, other
2: things that Sorbo has been involved in that aren't that.
3: I love right. how Lucy Lawless is constantly calling him out now on his, his ridiculous <laughs> posts. It's, no, it's, it's amusing as, as hell. Yeah, and I, yeah. al-
2: I also want to be very clear there is a difference between a conservative and a trash person. All right? Yeah. I, I am not calling out Republicans here. I'm not calling out all Republicans trash people. I don't believe that at all. I have lots of Republican friends. I used to be a Republican, for God's sake. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I washed it off. Um, (laughs) But there is a big difference between the two. This is the the difference. It's the difference between a Chris Pratt and a Gina Carano.
0: Although, you know, uh, Todd, you do mention Chris Pratt, and there are some rumblings because of uh, some things that he – He has like shared. So apparently there's like some kind of, uh, I don't know what the hell he shared. Some evangelical something or other Uh, related looking,
4: I'm looking at uh, Chris Pratt's stuff as we speak. Uh, It looks to me from, from this piece of looking at that, that he is relatively conservative, but he's really good at spinning it. And, uh, you know, the people have called him out for wearing the, a patch with the Gadsden flag. Gazdan flag. I wish that the Gasden flag hadn't been co-opted by the idiots, because I like the flag, too. And I could see just putting the patch on because you think it's cool. Uh, not now I couldn't, but maybe he's had the jacket for a while. Who knows? But, I mean, he doesn't express that. But uh, there's stuff here about a church he's involved in being a, a anti-LGBTQ. Boom. Um. Ah. <laughs> he got it
2: right. Yes.
4: Uh, And and he wrote uh, pretty good stuff here about uh, he's uh, not about hate. He's about love and acceptance and forgiveness. And, you know, the the Bible says, you know, strong opinions about divorce and the church helped him through his divorce. So I think he's very good at spinning it. I suspect he's fairly conservative, but I still want to believe there are I mean, I've, I've got relatives. I've got some friends that are fairly conservative. I want to believe that there's a purple in the middle. We can all meet and argue reasonably and respectfully. Uh, there are some people that don't want to argue reasonably respectfully, on both sides. Uh, I wouldn't say they're very fine people on both sides. I think the <laughs> far ends are the ones that are causing the trouble. I'm just a quick glance, because I hadn't heard about Chris Prance. Prad, Chris Prance. I haven't. Uh, Chris Prance is my uh, lord of the dance band. Um, uh. <laughs> 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 uh I hadn't heard about it, so I'm doing quick research while we're talking, and uh, my quick research is that he's probably conservative, but he's reasonable about it. He, he knows how to
3: discuss he, things yeah. like a person. He keeps a lot of that stuff to himself, but I, yeah, he was. It was attempted to vilify him because of his involvement with that church, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the pastor of has since been caught up in a uh, <laughs> a scandal of both monetary and philandering proportions. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was one of those weird things. Like, why is he being singled out when there's a lot of both conservative and liberal Hollywood types that both go to this church? Why is he particularly being singled out? And it was probably just because he was in the news cycle at the time. But you're yeah. right. He doesn't he doesn't post stupid stuff on his social media, like as in stupid opinions about stuff that's factually false. Uh, you know he he te- tends to keep it light, airy, and fun on his social media, which. I think maybe is why they were trying to single him out.
2: He keeps things Disney friendly for the most yes. part, and that's yeah. really what it comes down to this. Exactly. He knows where his bread is buttered on and what rules not to break. It, it doesn't take a wizard to not cause inflammation on the internet.
3: Right. Well, I mean, Look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, he's a hardcore Republican, but he's also a social liberal. And he is very vocal about when there is a certain let's say conservative storyline that's being pushed that's demonstrably false he'll stand up and blatantly attack it, say, "Look, this is false here's why it's false, et etc, et etc, et cetera. He does that a lot of that on his social media it's actually quite refreshing because here's a guy that he's he's a lifetime republican he, and he talks about his experience coming to the United States and then getting involved in acting and then politics. And, you know, he's not a, a squeaky clean, clean wheel, let's be fair, but he's owned up to a lot of the stuff that he's done and tried to be a better person. So yeah. it is yeah. possible if, to be if conservative if, in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> if
2: you, disagreement on policy, that's the way it is, and that's exactly. the way it, it should be, and that's where discussions leave. Uh, disagreement that certain people shouldn't have rights that other people have, yeah, that's a trash person idea. That's really what the two differences. Absolutely. There are other news you don't give a shit about, but I I think we've had enough punishment already with just this one thing. (laughs) So we're just going to move on to weekend geek. Netflix has partnered with Penguin Random House Children's UK to produce animated (laughs) film and TV. (laughs) What? What what did I miss? So much unpacking there. Penguins Random House. What Penguin Random House? <laughs> it's a, the book company. Uh-huh. Then, then, then Children's is the sub-thing and the UK version. So Penguin Random House, <laughs> Children's UK.
3: <laughs> so damn much. All right. That's the modern business world, Andy. You should get with the
4: program. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand like why people go with initials now and
2: acronyms. Yep. Uh, the, the PRHC UK. <laughs> That's the better that sounds like a
4: Berk like an Is that what it is? <laughs> uh,
2: they will be producing animated film and TV projects based on the Brian Jacques Redwall novels The series which first kicked off in 1986 now comprises 22 books and takes place in a Tolkien-esque fantasy universe populated by anthropomorphic animals The feature film which will be based on the very first novel is being written by over the garden wall creator Patrick McHale. The TV adaptation, on the other hand, is said to be focused on the character of Martin the Warrior, quote, a wise and ferocious mouse who co-founded Redwall Abbey along with Abbess Germaine. Per the official release, quote, the deal marks the first time that the film rights to the entire book series has been held by the same company. And for the first time, a feature film of any Jacques works will be made, unquote. Uh, The books were previously adapted for an animated show that ran for three seasons between the late 90s and early aughts. A stage musical and video game have also been derived from the IP. I'm excited to see some Redwall stuff. Uh, We were getting excited for a little bit because Disney was going to do the Mouse Guard, or Fox, I guess, was going to do the Mouse Guard. But then, like, two weeks before they were going to start filming the Mouse Guard, Disney kiboshed it. I mean, Idris Elba was attached to it. It had some big names attached. I was really disappointed when the Mouse Guard fell. So knowing that now the Redwall series, which is kind of along the same lines, is moving forward, yay. I'm very, very happy with this.
4: And just to clarify, is the Mouse Guard actually part of the Redwall series, or is no? It somebody... That
2: is two separate things.
4: Okay, well, uh, that was similar sure. in flavor.
2: Okay, but uh, good clarification. Uh, Dan Harmon's first project under his overall deal with Fox is an animated series steeped in the culture and mythology of ancient Greece. The show, which is eyeing a 2022 premiere, doesn't have an official title yet but is said to focus on, quote, a flawed family of humans, gods, and monsters that tries to run one of the world's first cities without killing each other, unquote. (laughs) While Harmon co-created Rick and Morty with Justin Roiland for Adult Swim, the duo are going their separate ways on subsequent animated shows for different networks and or streaming platforms. Uh, Roiland teamed up with Rick and Morty writer-producer Mike McMahon, also the mastermind of Star Trek Lower Decks, for Hulu's Solar Opposites, uh, before Rick and Morty, Harmon created the NBC sitcom Community. I'm not saying Dan Harmon can do no wrong. No one, <laughs> no one has that. But Dan Harmon doing a family animated comedy about Greek mythology? Yes, yes, please, yes, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm still waiting for the Community movie. <laughs> mm
2: is that still a potential is or is that just forever vaporware
1: that's vaporware okay <laughs>
4: look at the uh cast you'd have to get back together that'd be uh, that's a fine a point yeah. yeah yeah
2: wow just glover alone yeah board game arena is an online board game platform that lets people play 250 or more games with just their mobile browser the games are official online version and their support for 40 languages. Uh, some of the games can be played for free, while others and some features require a premium membership of $4 a month or $24 a year. Asmodee Games has recently announced that they are acquiring Board Game Arena. The press release states that Board Game Arena will still operate independently, and will work with all publishers, but many Asmodee games, including Catan, Pandemic, and Ticket to Ride, will be added to the platform.
3: Hmm.
2: I have played the Virtual Tabletop, uh, and there's another one that I was working with for a little while. I had never heard of this board game arena until I I saw this press release. Uh, So I decided to dive into it a little bit. I'm impressed by what I see. I really like it in fact, I think I like it better than the whole virtual tabletop experience. A uh, virtual tabletop is a neat idea, but the really rough part of it is that there's no underlying programming mechanic mechanic for each game. Mm-hmm. You basically choose the game that you 're going to play, and then everybody on that tabletop has a virtual hand that moves all the pieces. Everybody has to know how the virtual tabletop works and how to interact with it. And it's kind of easy with the physics engine to mess something up and have mm-hmm. to basically like take a whole stack of shuffled cards that all of a sudden get spread across the table because someone clicked well. it wrong. <laughs> it's great, yeah. and any game can be played on it, but it really has a high level of learning curve to get it to work right. And with multiple people, that becomes rougher. This is more along the lines of when you buy a program of the game itself, like through Steam. Like Steam has a whole bunch of board games that are just singular games, like uh, uh, Terraforming Mars, for example. So when you load that up, that is the Terraforming Mars board game. All the underlying stuff is there. You just have to be there to play. Go through the tutorial, and you're ready to go. This is more like that except that there's a bunch of board games in one place, and it's pretty easy to use. It it kind of forces you to go into a tutorial of one of the games that are offered. It plays you against the computer on it and gives you a real easy way of getting used to the interface, and it's a simple mobile interface. I used it on my computer, but could easily be done on a tablet or a phone. In fact, my wife and I are probably going to use this to learn a bunch of games.
1: Yeah. What's it called again?
2: It's called Board Game Arena. Board Game Arena, and okay. uh, and it's free uh, there. But again, there is a premium membership if you want to do it, and that unlocks like the really good games, like a Seven Wonders and things like that. But there's a lot of games on there that are for free, and they're not just like like Go and Chess, like you find with some of them. And they're actual board and card games that are available for purchase, or you can just go on here and play with a bunch of people that you know or don't know and they have yeah. different tiers too it tell ask you what kind do you want to just have a simple game or do you want to get to the competitive thing where you get like experience points and you actually raise in the ranks <laughs> in board games if you want to get a little more competitive with it
1: can you play against the computer
2: uh, i'm still trying to learn on that I, the tutorial you can i know or you you're kind of forced to uh, i haven't right. gone deep enough to know if you can play against the computer on all of these things. I'm guessing not. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking you have to play with other people on it, Uh, much like uh, the other tabletop stuff. Which I prefer, actually. Sure, but sometimes you just want to get a game in and you don't want to wait and find somebody else out there to do it. Uh, I will say my experience so far with board game multiplayer has been... Uh, leaps and bounds above my experience in playing a basic multiplayer on, say, Xbox or PlayStation. Mm. <laughs> that, that board game players uh, tend to uh, be very uh, compassionate, especially to new players, and are very welcoming and trying to establish more of a community and feel no one's going to just call you a shit bird because you pressed the wrong button. At least is thus there, far, in my experience. Is
4: there a teabag button on this or no? Uh,
2: not yet, but maybe in the premium version there, there might be. So I'm going to be playing around the board game arena more this week. Uh, so uh, I'm on there as Master Torgo. So if you are interested in checking it out, you can find me there. Feel free to friend me up and uh, maybe you can play some games. Before you go on, Todd. Yes. Uh, I, I have to
0: ask. Andy, are you all right? You've got, like, a big giant squint in your right eye. Did you get poked in the eye or something?
4: Uh, no, I'm not sure why I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, oh, that's why. Because I've got my glasses on weird. <clears throat> <Sorry.
0: laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you're, you're like, sitting there. I'm watching you, and you're like this most of the time. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out why I can't
4: see, and that's why. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <Appreciate> it. <laughs>
2: Okay. <laughs> what just happened? Uh, I don't it's, know.
4: Uh, My glasses are a little bent. I had to, I had to bend them around the other day, the other, earlier today, so I've got them fixed up
3: now. You know what, Todd? What happened is it's one life mate correcting another life mate's problems.
2: Uh, we know it well, Jeff. We know it well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad he doesn't look so much like a pirate. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> There's enough eye patches in the house. So I can do it in a minute if we need it. Oh,
2: my Lord. <laughs> MGM has acquired the rights to Mercy Sparks, the Josh Blaylock-created comic about the female, female demon looking to navigate the tricky supernatural and ethical questions raised by someone from hell trying to live and perform their mission on Earth. With 10 years under its belt, the comic has tons to pull from. Nick Shafir is set to write the script while Blaylock is executive producing. Uh no word on a release window thus far. I haven't read Mercy Sparks. Anybody read the Mercy Sparks comic? No. <laughs> all right. But it
4: sounds like a certain a certain demon I know in Vermont who's in love with a reporter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a that's a reference to our monster of the week game.
2: Good stuff. Uh-huh. The right people will get it.
1: He has an all... audience of four.
2: Yeah, I say all four of you. <laughs>
1: Five, really.
2: I know we're going late into the show because uh, we do that sometimes, but I still want to do a little bit of red light, green light. Yeah. Oh, yay,
1: my favorite. Red
3: light, green light, green light. Such a fun game to play. Yeah. doesn't matter what you say. They're going to make this shit
4: anyway. Let me just say,
1: as a listener, the new format of Red Light and Green Light is tons of fun to listen to. It was always tons of fun, but now it's really tons of fun.
0: Speaking yeah. of the new format... I'm caught
4: up on uh, Ice Cream Social, and uh, they spent a whole episode doing Red Light Green Light. The what? bastards. Yeah, well, actually, I, it's a bit of hyperbole. They, did a, uh, they had a trivia contest with uh, uh, Night Attack that was hosted by oh, uh, yes. Mikey from Movies of the Mikey. I and love the when format, they do that. Well, the format was Mikey reading off descriptions of movies from, I can't remember the source, but some of the, 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 the gimmick was some of the, the uh, pitches were fake and some of them were real. And some of the movies were fake. So <laughs> I it, listened it, to
2: that episode and I never even got that connection. But you're right. It is kind of like red light, green light.
4: Yeah. So, <laughs> so instead of doing red light, green light tonight, can we do Jock versus Nerds?
0: <laughs> <laughs> really all of us against Jeff <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right gentlemen We got some more pitches here We've done some good ones in the meantime Within the last few weeks So let's, let's keep this, uh, this ball rolling But it doesn't mean that we got more money In the studio Done right is still uh, not the most profitable uh, Thing in Hollywood Right now Okay. So
3: right.
2: I, I love that Jeff Jeff is, is like, I'm not fucking sold on this at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am I've not fucking come to play. Give me bitches. <laughs> come on, Jeff,
1: play ball.
3: I was more a- questioning the the notions that the that the, the company doesn't have quote unquote money to spend. Right. The company doesn't have money. <laughs>
2: Listen, the company doesn't have much I do have, however, my three homes in Bali But other than that, the company is doing terrible That I will accept So we've got four pitches But each of you can only green light one That's all we can afford And one or more of these pitches may not be real So, the shows that we have for the pitches tonight Is Clue Sorority House Massacre, Stephen King's Sour Ground, and Burn. So those are your four shows. Clue, Sorority House Massacre, Stephen King's Sour Ground, and Burn. So let's get into it. First off, an animated series based on the board game Clue is in development at Fox. Fox Entertainment has partnered with Hasbro's content studio E1 and Bento Box Entertainment on the series with Bento Box providing animation. No writers or producers are currently attached to the project. Quote, Colonel Mustard, in the conservatory, with the lead pipe. By just hearing those colorful phrases alone, you immediately know what they mean, leaving no mystery as to why Clue is one of the most beloved board games turned IP of all time. We couldn't be more excited to develop it as an animated series, along with E1 and Bento Box, said Michael Thorne, president of entertainment for Fox Entertainment. Clue was originally released as a board game in 1949. It was invented by Anthony E. Pratt during World War II to pass time during the air raids in England. In the game, players must sort through clues to determine which of the guests at a dinner party at a mansion killed their host, Mr. Body. The game has been exported to more than 30 countries and has 324 different potential plots for players to solve. So that is the first show, the animated clue for Fox.
4: Wait, next. Wait, 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 wait. That's yeah, yeah, the yeah. entirety of it. You That's just the entirety the game. You haven't
2: described the show. There is no other description than that. That's what you got.
4: I call bullshit on it. Carry on it. That's all you get, Andy.
2: It's like he's never done Red Light, Green Light before. Some of these are like this,
1: right? Well, now look. There, there's enough there. I got an idea about the shawl. Uh, move on. Uh, we'll go to the next thing. Nah.
2: See, Biggs gets it, Jeff. He's in it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Biggs is also a showman. I am not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> next up, Norman Reedus's production company, Big Bald Head, is bringing the horror classic Sorority House Massacre to television. In the original film... A group of sorority sisters is stalked by a killer who, in addition to murdering many of them, has a telepathic link to one of the girls. The television series will also be created in partnership with Stephen Trask, who is best known for creating the Broadway show Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's an interesting combination. (laughs) Yeah. Angry Inch? Yeah. Yeah. It's the size of the penis. The Remains of the Penis. You're right, it's the Remains of the Penis. <laughs> if you haven't seen... Uh... <laughs> Isn't that a yeah. Merchant
0: Ivory movie, Remains yes, of that's the that's... Penis?
4: It's <laughs> <laughs> actually yes. remains is the uh, cover band for the Merchant Ivory band.
2: <laughs> Yeah, if you've never heard of Hedwig yeah. and the Angry Inch, check it out sometime, people. It's uh, It's quite a thing. Angry Inch Inch, inch. Yeah. inch.
3: And <laughs> no. I thought it was always the Angry Itch until in my more recent Years <laughs>
2: When what it was it HBO Max that recently released uh, Hedwig and the Witch Or something like that yeah. When I yeah. first read that I was like oh shit they're doing an animated version of Angry Inch but no that's not, <laughs> not The same thing
1: Although I think they did Shoot They did shoot it when Neil Patrick Harris was playing Hedwig Oh, so it's out there somewhere. It's yeah, out there somewhere.
2: Yeah. It was a Broadway show first and then they made a movie of it.
1: Oh, that's Actually. right. There's a movie version with the original cast. That's yeah. right.
2: So Stephen Trask, the creator of that, is working with Norman Reedus to bring sorority house massacre to television. There's there's the there's the single sentence pitch on that.
4: So wait, bring it to television as a series or a TV movie?
2: No, we we only you know, do TV series on this Red Light, Green Light. So this is all series that's,
4: stuff. That's what I thought, but I just I was trying to imagine I stretch it out into a series. Okay, carry
2: on. Next up, CBS All Access is developing a limited series called Stephen King's Sour Ground as a prequel to set Pet Cemetery. The show will be co-produced by Guillermo del Toro and Stephen King. Set 100 years before the events of the movie Pet Cemetery, the show will focus on the Mi'kmaq Indian tribe and the tragic events that led up to the Wendigo corrupting the burial ground, which brings the recently buried back to life. The Mi'kmaq see the event as a blessing until the reanimated people start displaying strange behavior. In a statement by Del Toro, quote, working with Stephen King has been a dream of mine since I first picked up my first copy of Salem's Lot. Pet Sematary is one of my favorite books, and I'm honored to add to the mythology of that tragic tale. Oh, and don't worry, fans of the books and movies. I promise you, not only will a Wendigo be in it, but it will be brought to life by Doug Jones, unquote. Uh, Stephen King is planning on producing the Bible for the show. No writer has been announced. CBS All Access just wrapped up the remake of Stephen King's The Stand. Now... Which
0: Indian tribe was it? Was it the Micmac or the Paddywhack who gave the dog the bone? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's, it's,
2: the, it's the Paddywhacks that uh, uh, we're dealing in bone magic, so it's probably them.
4: You know, I
3: got some bone mm-hmm. magic for you.
4: I, I should have seen that, but I'm living out here next to Agawam and Pequannock and the <laughs> River. <laughs> well... But, I'm sorry. sorry. I've, I've lost my ability to see the weirdness in names.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry. Andy, I... were you saying specific names or were you just mumbling again? <laughs>
0: Agawam.
3: Yes.
4: Agawam is, is a half a mile, well, maybe a mile and a half from me. The Pequanic is uh, in, uh, is down the street, about, about 10 miles. The Podunk River is about 15 miles away, actual Podunk. Quababog is a river to the Far East. Oh, my of the God, we
2: geography lesson. Yeah. <laughs>
4: And where's <laughs> Chappaquiddick? Chappaquiddick is out on the uh, Cape Cod. No, Chapek is out on uh, on the island. Um, where's And Chappaqu- <laughs>
3: Andy does geography would be a hilarious series. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it would have to be a very educational series. I've been studying the uh, Farmington River and the uh, the uh, Westfield River. I've been I've taken those
3: uh, rivers up to their headwaters now. Maybe uh, we'll Jeff, shoot I... that as bonus material. There you go. Uh,
1: Perfect, we'll put that on the History Channel right away. Yeah, as far as entertaining
2: as a series, Jeff, uh, maybe for half an episode.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I resent that. I think it'd be great.
3: <laughs> so you're saying he's no Jeff Goldblum. He can't, he can't carry a documentary series. Oh, well, yeah. He can carry
2: it. He'll just drop it when the...
4: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm willing <laughs> to work with Goldblum.
2: Now,
0: he said, he said he's taking it to the headwaters. I think uh, the series should be called Andy Taking It to the Head.
1: Oh! <laughs> uh, oh.
2: So that's Stephen King's Sour Ground. <laughs> oh, yes, right.
3: <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, we were talking
3: about a Stephen King novel, weren't we?
2: <laughs> and last, uh, Bad Robot is developing Patrick Ness's fantasy book, Burn which revolves around the girl and her father who hire a dragon to work their Washington farm during the height of the Cold War. Here's a description from the book. On a cold Sunday evening in early 1957, Sarah Dewhurst waited with her father in the parking lot of the Chevron gas station for the dragon he would hired to help on the farm. Sarah and her father, outcasts in their little town of Frome, Washington, are forced to hire a dragon to work for their farm, something only the poorest of the poor ever have to resort to. The dragon, Casimir has more to him than meets the eye, though. Sarah can't help but be curious about him, an animal who supposedly doesn't have a soul, but who seemingly is intent on keeping her safe because the dragon knows something she doesn't. He has arrived at the farm with a prophecy in his mind, a prophecy that involves a deadly assassin, a cult of dragon worshippers, two FBI agents in hot pursuit, and somehow Sarah Duhurst herself. Burn is Ness's ninth book, J.J. Abrams will executive produce, along with Bad Robot's head of television, Ben Stevenson. So there you have it, gentlemen. The four shows this week are Clue sorority house massacre stephen king's sour ground and burn uh, we will leave it to our uh our, our latest uh, member of professor biggs where do you want to lay your green light
1: well i gotta tell you uh none of these things is really lighting a fire under my ass but of all all four of them i would have to say that the sour ground thing has the most uh, to me has the most legs to it clue is an animated show what are they going to do? Solve the game once and then uh, play it again the next week? Nah, I don't see anything. I don't see anything going there. Uh, same thing with Sorority House Massacre. I think we've already seen that on television. It was called Scream Queens. That was fine for what it was, but uh, didn't really have legs there either. Uh, as for the dragon thing, nah. Ah, who cares? No, I go for that uh, Stephen King thing. That guy. That guy's made bank uh, for for us for a long time. Huh?
2: All right, that's one green from the professor for Stephen King's Sour Ground. Andy, where do you put your green light?
4: Well, I can't do the character work he did, but uh, um, <laughs> I like the idea of Sour Ground. I think that could be very good, but I actually, uh, up up until you described Burn, but then Burn, I really was excited by. No interest at all in Sorority House Massacre. Clue, uh, even though there's no description of the show, I'm imagining if they're going to do it as a weekly thing, it's going to have to be a Scooby-Doo kind of thing. They're going to have to be solving a different mystery every week, uh, which is cool, but not my not something I want to watch. So, Burn. My, my money goes behind Burn. That's a green light from Andy for Burn.
2: All right, Jeff, where do you lay your green?
3: I think I have to go with Andy on this one. Uh, burn actually sounded to me like the most unique of all the pitches. I mean, Sorority House Massacre has been done, what, four times already? Three times? Uh, so... I don't think it needs another reboot. Stephen King, I, I forget the title now, but the, the history of the, uh, the Sour Ground, rather, sorry. I don't know. I, I, I've, I've had enough of Pet Sematary. Um, <laughs> clue's already been done to perfection. I don't think it needs to be even revisited as a soft reboot or a, you know, complete refresh, if you will. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with Burn. Kirsten, where'd you lay your green?
0: Well, yeah, Clue isn't doing anything for me, uh, I have to say. Um, sorority House Massacre, though, I could be sold on if you promised me the killer was Norman Reedus, and he was going around with a crossbow shooting all the sorority girls. <laughs> Burn actually sounds interesting. It does sound cool, but I really want to see the Micmax and the Patty Wax go at it in uh, <laughs> Sour Ground. Because, uh, you know, Wendigo, Wendigos are great. You just you, you have a wild man eating monster. It's uh, what can go wrong with that? So I'm with uh, Stephen King uh, thingy.
1: Honorable mention, yeah. I want to ask that uh, Andy Taylor does New England geography uh, show. Maybe <laughs> yeah. will lead it. <laughs> it will
2: definitely be cheaper to make. I'm all for yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, my understanding is he will work for exposure, so uh, we'll just pay him at exposure, and that will be nice and cheap for us. You no, don't no, want
4: no. I I to said, expose I said, himself exactly. I, I, I you misunderstood me. I'm going to be going to be exposing myself during the show. <laughs> Great. That's so Disney Plus, of the it is.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> <All> Gina Carano. Na na
3: na 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 na
2: and I think since we're tied with it, that both things get green lit, right? Cause we have oh. enough faith and they're in they're even. So two things will get green lit this week. Wow. So we're going to green light is- burn. We're going to green light, sour ground, sorority house massacre and clue. I'm afraid sits down into the benches. So that being said, would you like to guess which of these are false pitches? Uh, Professor Biggs, you got an idea.
1: I think, I think, I think, burn is the is the pitches bitches. All right, Jeff.
3: You know, because it's the most creative, so of all of these pitches, I think it, <laughs> it's also burn. <laughs> Although it could be sorority house massacre, because again, that's a movie that's that's already had. Well, I guess technically a an original, a sequel, and then a reboot. So. That's my thought. I think it's burn.
2: All right. Andy, what do you think is the pitch's bitches? I
4: think it's probably sour ground, but similar reasoning as, as, uh, yeah, that that it's a very good pitch. Yeah. I I just think, uh, it's good enough to be a good pitch, but not real. Uh, the sorority house massacre one, like I said, done too many times. And, and the clue one is if somebody made that up, it's a weird pitch because, uh, uh, there's no description of the
2: show. Hey Kirsten, where do you think is the pitch's bitches? Sour ground. For those who said sour ground, you are correct. That was sent to us by Jake, the <laughs> yes. person that loves pet cemetery more than anything else in the world.
4: Should have known.
2: It all makes sense.
4: Damn it. So that means that they actually did a pitch for Clue without describing the show.
2: Yeah. It was an announcement, and I, they kind of felt that uh, since you already know what Clue was, that's all you need to know.
3: I know it was pitched in, like, February of, like, 2019 that they were going to go forward with the production, but since I haven't, like, seen anything new in two years, I just figured <laughs> it's it's another one of those that just got indefinitely shelved.
2: I, I well, think I, because of COVID, and that's why they went with an animated aspect to it. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So that means we are getting Clue, we are getting Sorority House Massacre, and we are getting Burn coming to a TV channel near you, and you are not getting Stephen King's Sour Ground. And congratulations, Jake, for sending a pitch that got selected for a green light. It's a good idea. You joined Timothy Knoll, Captain Luddite, and Pat Spurl in successfully pitching a green. Good job.
3: So is the, is, the, is the lesson here that they need to make worse pitches so that they'll seem more like a regular Hollywood film so that we'll stop <laughs> picking them? I don't know what the lesson here is. Uh, I don't think there is a lesson.
2: This, this is a willy-nilly kind of game. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I like, I like the fact that so far all of these have sounded like actual, actual projects that, have, that could be going forward. That, that's awesome.
2: I think the thing yeah. that really sells me on the sour ground is the whole Doug Jones. I, I, that, that man is the best physical actor
1: working in Hollywood. He, yeah, he, he really is. is. But, but word on the street is, is he slightly older than I am or slightly younger? Anyway, we, we're about the same age. And he said that the, the physical acting, with the, especially with the prosthetics and all that, are really starting to get to him. Uh, oh, I imagine. I
3: got my picture taken with him. And when you see him in person, he's a very slight individual. Yep. I was actually surprised by how much prosthetics he wears, not just in discovery, but you know, in many of the other projects he's done. And quite frankly, you know, I, I remember um, Michael Dorn talking about just wearing the head prosthetics and, and how that took its toll over the decade plus that he played Wharf, And uh, I, can't imagine having essentially full face, hand, et cetera, prosthetics and having to wear those all the time. It's got to yeah. destroy his skin because uh, he had hair when I got my picture taken with him. And he said, yeah, I'm going to have to shave my head again soon because I've got to go back and get in the prosthetics. And that was 2019 at the Star Trek convention. So, Yeah, yeah.
2: If you have a pitches, bitches to send to us, write us comments at uglycowshow.com. And of course, you can hit us up with any emails or questions or suggestions that you like. Uh, I I I read everything, and some of it makes it onto the show. Uh, we still have some emails to read on the show, uh, but we ran out of little time this week. It's going to happen, but we'll get to them eventually. And until next week, I am Master Torgo. 80s
3: Jeff. Yeah. <laughs>
2: okay.
4: Was that it? Fact checked Andy.
1: <laughs> Professor Professor Biggs. Wait, wait,
0: wait! I, I want to bet. Why the why the yak? Yeah, okay? Oh, I was just calling back to Jeff with the okay. <laughs> oh,
2: okay. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week in Geek <laughs>
0: Right.
4: Yeah. Uh, Biggs, you you are of course familiar with uh, with uh, Beyond Belief and the brilliant pageant <laughs> Brewster. Yes. We need to scrape together our funds and get her on cameo, reciting a list of Native American uh, place <laughs> names in New England.
1: Yes, Squonk, oh No, <laughs> no. How about Pick the Agawang. No? How about? <laughs> oh my God! If you haven't heard from, uh, Beyond Belief on the Thrilling Adventure Hour, I mean, Thrilling Adventure Hour. Just you can tune into almost anything and just be delighted. But beyond belief, and yeah, Paget Brewster, she's she's just great on that. She did a behind-the-scenes interview on there where they asked her, you know, how'd you come up with the voice, and she goes, "Well, I remember when it was got pitched to me, you know, there was it was Nick and Nora Nora Charles, but they, you know, but they ghost hunt or they see ghosts, and so I I knew vaguely about the about the Mid Atlantic nineteen forties dialect, and so I first just try to do that, but then I actually, you know, watch some thin man movies and, and yeah, but she does it brilliantly. And that is a thing she's actually
4: done on stage a few times is they just give her a, a a list to read and she's (laughs) just nothing to it. Just the way she recites it.
1: Just hilarious. Yeah. And then every now and then just a weird, you know, vowel shifts in a word here and there, just, just fantastic.
4: I, I don't think it's anything in the works for it now But there's some talk at some point about doing A, a Beyond Belief TV show um, And Paget Brewster And uh, uh, Paul F. Tompkins Physically could do it I mean they, they've got the right look for the thing As opposed to um, uh, <laughs> As opposed to Sparks, uh, Nevada Where Mark Evan Jackson Doesn't quite fit the look
1: of the character <laughs> Yeah Although that would be funny yeah, <laughs> that would be. I, I, I think with a little bit of makeup and everything, uh, he could possibly pull it off. The one that the one that they have issue with is doing is doing croach. <laughs> well, that that
4: would have to be a heavy makeup thing. I mean, uh, he's a. I, have I told you my story? I must have told you about this, him. Uh, um, uh, Mark Gagliardi. I saw this him. This podcast
2: on a, went really weird all of a sudden. <laughs> it also just became this was just this little discussion <laughs> yeah. when,
3: when doesn't it Todd when doesn't it
2: I gotta end the show
3: somehow no
2: <laughs>
3: we already ended the show
2: no we haven't there's no stinger <laughs> <laughs> there, there's just two old dudes talking about the performance
1: let me tell <laughs> you uh, guys <laughs> don't spend an hour
2: I'm, I'm also in the actor's studio. <laughs> that's it. I'm calling this episode surgery boner, and that's all.
0: <laughs>
2: that's, I'm not familiar with that curry. What, why, why is that one so special?
4: It's so the one I eat back home. It's, uh, it's like a, kind of like you open it up, and it's like curry flavor chocolate bars. You melt into your, your no. vegetables and meat you're cooking. I mean, it, I've made a bunch of curries with it, and uh, nearly anything works good in a curry except for bananas, but nearly mm-hmm. anything.
2: <laughs> that, that sounds like from knowledge. What, did you find curried bananas somewhere?
4: I nope. uh, was making a nope. curry, and uh, I had a banana that was about to go, and I'm like, oh, let's throw this banana into the curry. Oh. My children! My children still remind me of that to this day. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> hey.
0: Excuse me.
3: Well, uh, Yay, boogers! That was kind of a postcoital. Uh, yeah. There, Steve. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, I've never heard of a post postcoital in. Eh?
3: It's <laughs> well, a joke paid one time, or, or unless I'm you're associating him not- with somebody else.
4: <laughs> also, Todd, you're not packing equipment. He's packing.
3: <laughs> 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 oh,
4: that reminds me. Postcoital uh, is my uh, Prince cover band. But
3: only for the years that he was just going by the symbol. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's another one of those holly types that. <coughs> Sorry, choked on the chip I was eating. Actually, you, oh, you, look, exactly. you look less less shadowy now, Big. Yeah, you look very bright now.
0: Oh, okay. Mom said he's bright.
4: Well, she meant you know. She she meant you know. In the same way you, you say that
3: the, uh, everybody's... Too bad. late. Andy, you've already spoiled the joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andy, you're right. You're lucky that there are no filters on this thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a walrus. I swear I'm not a walrus. We're, we're not lucky. We, we could use some filters, but you, sir... <laughs> you chop
4: probably, uh, shave the, uh... Superman symbol in your chest hair. I think there are people who are doing that now. The new thing is artistically shaving your chest hair.
3: He would do it right in the mirror and then realize that he did bizarro. Right. <laughs> what the fuck does that even mean?
2: Uh, I'm like, okay, where are they going with this? Where are they going with this? Oh my God, they're not stopping
0: with this. <laughs> 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 but, but andy was so
2: excited to, to talk about that with you steve that he was just going to start a whole new podcast at the end of this <laughs> one <laughs>